Hey everyone, welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi, and we have a very special episode planned today with some very special guests. I am very excited to have this discussion with everybody. So first we have Green from the Indigenous Anarchist Federation. Welcome, Green. Hey, oh, uh, how's it going? Wonderful. Glad to have you back. Green's actually been on the show before. Uh, we did a really important episode, I thought, about decolonizing revolution, which um, was really well received. But if you haven't heard that one, please do check it out. I, I think that was, yeah, one of the more important episodes that we've done. Um, so amazing to have you back. Uh, we also have Ash from the Horror Vanguard. What's up, Ash? Nothing much. Just a, just another lovely day in the plague. Yes. Um, yeah, Ash has also been on several episodes before. I feel like at this point, you could probably be an honorary third co-host for how many times <laughs> you've been on the Vegan Vanguard. Um, but yeah, great to have you back as well. And we also have Jacob, who is my partner, actually, and who is a mega fan of FF7, which is what we're going to discuss today. So welcome, Jacob. Thank you. And honestly, I'm just happy to be here <laughs> yeah. talking about my favorite game ever. Exactly. Um, a lot of people, I've posted about this on social media, a lot of people are hyped for this this episode to but come out. I so. told you so. Yes. <laughs> So I'm just going to shout out the patrons, the new patrons first, uh, before we dive into things. So thank you so much to Sarah DeJong, Jacqueline Castro, Bobby Charlotte Arcanite, And thank you also to Lena Ross, who gave us a wonderful donation via PayPal. If you would like to support the show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash vegan vanguard, or give us a one-time donation via PayPal on our website, veganvanguardpodcast.com. Or something that really helps the show uh, and really helps increase our reach is if you just share the episodes with friends, uh, share it with family, um, and also giving us ratings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play or whatever you listen to us on also really helps to increase our reach. And I love reading the reviews. So thank you to everyone who helps to keep this show going. So also, before we dive into the main topic, we're going to start off with some hopeful headlines inspired by FF7 and or eco-terrorist kind of operations. <laughs> um, and I say, I say terrorist lovingly, <laughs> like, like terrorist in the good way. Eco-activist, eco-activists. Eco-activists, there you go. Allegedly, asterisk, uh, uh, as a bit eco-terrorism <laughs> yes. so i've come up with two ash has come up with two i actually found it quite difficult to come up with these uh we were thinking about them for quite a while and i thought it would be really easy because you know avalanche itself is kind of a hopeful headline just in itself but um yeah actually anyway so what do i want to do maybe i'll i'll do one ash do one i'll do one ash do one yeah sure all right, and then everyone else can just react. Okay. <clears throat> Gaia hypothesis confirmed true as earthen weapons seize and destroy big oil operations. <laughs> I love this. All right, Ash. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah, so my first one is uh, Rufus Shinra completes first month of hard labor dismantling Mako reactors in new restorative justice program. Oh my oh, god, so that is so good. Oh my god, that's way better than mine. Um, okay. 
<laughs> what did it take to bring our solar punk reality into existence? Relearning how to speak with the planet. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, your second one. Um, uh, yeah, my my last one is. Avalanche Mutual Aid Group stands ready to support transition to communism after the fall of the Shinra Corporation. Amazing. Oh my god. I Perfect. love yours. <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll pretend that they don't become petty bourgeois business owners after the events of Final Fantasy VII like they show yeah. in uh, Advent Children. <laughs> <laughs> These are hopeful headlines. Hopeful. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thank you for that. That was awesome. So... Let's dive into it. So first, I just thought we might talk about, you know, why are we, well, I don't think I've even introduced the theme for this, this week. So the theme, the theme that we are discussing is Final Fantasy VII. And we were inspired to make this because uh, if you weren't aware, uh, after 20 years or 23 so, years. 23 years, they've come out with a remake just now. So we thought, what an incredible time to dive into the amazing themes that were brought up in the original FF7 and talk about their relevance to today. So I thought we might just start by by discussing, you know, why are we bothering to, to dissect this? What are some of our experiences playing the game? And what relevance do we think it has for this historical moment? Ash. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's a running joke that we always call an Ash person. I know, right? Oh. I was going to say, even there's just four <laughs> options and it's still me. But um, yeah. yeah, I think I think for, for me, and I know a lot of people um, that I've talked with kind of share this experience, but like, like I first played Final Fantasy VII in my early teen years. And like, I, you know, I didn't quite get, get a lot of the messages and themes at the time, but like the, the radical pro-environment stance, the distrust of corporations, the like inherent suspicion of military force, like all, all of those seeds were planted into, into a young mind. And I think mm-hmm. like, like Final Fantasy VII has carried with me through the years. This is a game I like regularly go back and revisit. And like, I, I just think like that the messaging is so fantastic in this game. At, at some mm-hmm. points and with some nuance, sure. But like, especially for our current moment, we're like our our terrible apocalypse and the like semi apocalyptic apocalyptic world of like Final Fantasy are kind of like there's this eerie convergence that's going on between our environment and their environment. I think that's making this really kind of like a salient game right now. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel that. Definitely feel that. Um, how about you, Green? Uh, I was I was a little older than Ash when I played it. I was probably in my late teens, um, and I was already identifying as an anarchist when it came out. Although that was like baby anarchist without any uh, without any access to theory. But uh, I took to it right away because I picked up on the sort of anti anti resource extraction themes. Uh, that are so so fucking relevant to our day and age mm-hmm. right now, like um, especially the first half. It kind of takes a different different turn once Sephiroth shows up, but the first the first bit of it is all like anti mining, uh, and I really took it for the anti mining anti resource extraction allegory that it was. And yeah, and like Barrett's objectively right. <laughs> like objectively, like yeah, like we're we're stuck in the the we're stuck in the shoes of a uh, cloud, but Barrett's like on fucking top of everything. He is he's entirely right that 
like resource extraction is literally killing the planet and he is the only one that is really like organizing things to to do anything about it at least within like the context of the game cloud's just a hired merc this is true yeah um how about you jacob well in terms of its relevance to our present moment i think everyone else here did a good job of summing it up um my experiences with the game are a bit different uh i played it first when i was about i think i was like the perfect age to 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 come across that game which is about 11 or 12 and i was introduced to it to uh to it through a friend and he taught me about the game and about the characters and even before I played it myself I was watching him do it and um I was like wow this I had never seen a game like this before like I had uh you know I played Super Nintendo and N64 but in terms of like uh the story and the characters and I I had never seen anything like this I I also had a Mac so like I wasn't PC gaming and I didn't have like Planescape Torment or any of those awesome games that were coming out around that time um so to see a big narrative like, like this was really huge. And so as we know, uh, Final Fantasy VII deals a lot uh, with the theme of death and loss. And uh, my friend, uh, when we were 16, the one who introduced me to the game, uh, died of a very rare form of cancer. So the game has incredible sentimental value for me, and I revisit it every year. And... Um, yeah, that's that's my experience with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my experience was very different than all of yours because I only recently played this because I only recently bought a used PS4 um, at the behest of my beloved <laughs> here who is like, you have to play Final Fantasy VII. Um, but yeah, when I was a kid, I played a lot of games and I had a lot of systems, but I, I just felt like I had so many systems, right? Like I had like original Nintendo, Super Nintendo, I had Sega, I had GameCube, I had Xbox, I had N64. So I just had a plethora of systems. Um, so I was like, ah, you know, do I really need a, a PlayStation as well on top of this? I just, I never got one when I was younger. Um, so I kind of missed out on this whole cultural moment um but having recently played it uh yeah i think you all encapsulated the relevance uh, really really well i feel like you know we're in the worst ecological crisis of our time we have much less than 10 years i mean probably just like a couple years left <laughs> right to avoid apocalypse which is another big theme in the game um we have major corporations which are basically ruling us as de facto states right like there's corporations that are more powerful than states um and they're they're wielding you know their own private uh police or there's privatized military like there's mercenaries everywhere right and you have the military just protecting capital enforcing expansion expansionism basically through indigenous territories um yeah through everywhere and you have a lot of um we'll say traumatized men <laughs> i was gonna say white men but we'll talk later about like how how we each read uh, sephiroth <laughs> um but you know we got traumatized men with no coping mechanisms that are kind of going going full fash uh so yeah some more direct avalanche like radical action direct action might be needed so oh. i think this could not be more relevant there's one more thing i'd like to say mm-hmm. uh without getting into spoilers the 
Oh, we're spoiling. <laughs> oh no, of the remake. I yeah, mean, yeah. Oh, okay. oh, no, 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 we, we no. should probably throw up a spoiler warning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we will be talking about the full plot of the original Final Fantasy VII. Um, I wanted to say something about the remake without getting into spoilers, uh, because a lot of our listeners probably won't have completed it yet. But the final uh, chapter in the game is called Destiny's Crossroads. And that is exactly where we find ourselves right now, uh, because uh, the pandemic is has brought us to a crossroads. And we're now uh, seeing the struggles of the ruling class and the kind of world uh, that's trying to be born and their resistance to it. Yes, um, I would say that's very apt. Uh, so before we go any further, we've just kind of talked about the overall themes here. Uh, I thought it would be wonderful to have one of Ash's famous <laughs> plot recaps of FS7 for anyone who has not played the game or is not really familiar with what we're talking about. Yes, this will this uh, this plot recap will not help you at all if you've never played the game. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, but here it goes. Myth is the fundamental condition of human society. Since our earliest moments, we have woven a tapestry of fictions to stabilize our position in the uncertain eddies of the real. In our modern times, with glowing tablets streaming seemingly factual information into our hands every moment of the day, we see ourselves as beyond the mythic. However, this too is myth. We see ourselves now not as storytellers, but as agents in a game premised on documentable information and provable fact. In this sense of a game, we are not players, but the played. As we lose our grip on the power of storytelling, we lose access to the stabilizing power of fiction. In some small way, Final Fantasy VII helps return this power to us. The power to name our enemies, to tell stories of their downfall, to envision a path forward. This is the gift given to us by this game. The ability to reconcile the uncertainty of our futures and the gnawing sorrow of our pasts. As the titular finality suggests, Every moment is the last moment to tell our story. Will you continue? Perfect. Damn. Perfect. Wow. <laughs> that was beautiful. That's not what I was expecting, but I loved it. <laughs> Wonderful. So, yes, um, if you still, how could you still not know what the plot is about after listening to that <laughs> plot recap? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it should be readily clear at this point, right? It's readily, <laughs> readily clear. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess we'll just get into it. Um, and. The, the plot will kind of come out as we're talking. I think we've all kind of alluded to the fact that um, basically you play as part of Avalanche, which is, uh, you know, an eco-activist group mm -hmm. uh, that is trying to shut down the operations of Shinra Corp, which is basically this giant corporation that's kind of, you know, basically just become the government and is just trying to, yeah, mine... Mako energy, which is the life force of the planet. They have a monopoly over the game world's equivalent of oil. Yes. Um, and they're very yeah. expansionist and um, just like ruthless capitalists that are destroying the planet and hurting people. Yeah, and in the course of the game you find out that there's a larger threat. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. There's a yeah. Like there's also there's also some class co commentary on it. Like there's a literal underclass that lives underneath the city. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. The, all the workers um, for Midgar, the main 
city. They all live in the the quote unquote slums, mm-hmm. and then they're yeah, yeah they're directly underneath the city, so they don't get any sunlight or anything mm-hmm. like that. Also, yeah. the bootlicking middle managers live in the slums too. <laughs> with, oh, do they? Yeah, with the laborers, they do. do they? Yeah, interesting. That, that's who uh, Barrett gets you an argument with on um, into an argument with on the subway oh, on the uh, right, the train. Right, 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 right. Middle manager. Yeah. I see. That scene is expanded on in the remake and it's fantastic, by the mm-hmm. way. Okay, so maybe we we'll we'll just dive into the anti-capitalist uh themes in this game. So how does the game represent capitalism? How does it re- represent resistance? Um and what parallels can we draw to this this our current moment? I'm gonna throw it to Green first <laughs> this time. Sorry, Ash. Um <laughs> A welcome relief. <laughs> well, so all of the all of the recent Final Fantasy games are based off of different countries in the world. I think Final Fantasy VII was the first to start that. Seven being America, uh, eight being Japan, uh, mm. nine being Europe, and uh, ten being the Caribbean. Uh, and I think this theme most comes up most strongly in Seven being America because uh, it really dives into. Um, mm-hmm. the particular American style capitalism of resource extraction of expansionism. That's why uh, Red 13 is it is supposed to be an allegory for um, native peoples and I think that really comes through. You can you, we, you can quibble about uh, representing native peoples through like uh, a cartoon cat but <laughs> I it's it's one of the rare issues where I don't actually have that big a problem with it because I think he is really well done otherwise. So yeah, so like Red's people are being colonized. That's that's his whole stake in the game, and Shinra is basically a metaphor for mining slash oil, which is America's biggest industries. And then you have like a giant corporate hierarchy structured like an American corporate hierarchy, which of course in to to make it relevant to Japan was forced upon the Japanese in the wake of World War II after American um, occupation because uh, they were demilitarized. And uh, in order to sort of re- to, to save their economy, they restructured into like American-style conglomerates. And I, I think it has extreme relevance, especially the first half, um, to, our mo- to modernity because it's all about modern power structures. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Ash, what do you think? Um, yeah, I, I completely, I completely agree with all of that. Like, I think that's that's really fantastic, and like, part of like the weird stuff that art does to you that I just love. But like, playing this game when I was, you know, like a preteen or a tween or whatever, mm-hmm. like, definitely like turned me on to learn more about like the the native peoples of America and like my status as a settler in this space. And like, like it's it's not something that the game like gave me a great understanding of, but like by playing this game, it was like, oh wait, <laughs> like there are these things in this world that I don't know about, and it's just so fantastic when like just bizarre, weird art, including video games, can do stuff like that. But I think like for capitalism in this game, it's just so salient about how pervasive it is. Right. Like this whole game is just like the menagerie of the American capitalist experience, because like everywhere you go in this game, there are like downtrodden, poor people barely scraping their lives together, like living in dirt. And then like 
like slightly out of frame of everything there's the golden saucer just like looming on the horizon yes. there's all these like opulent beach resorts and experiences you can have mm-hmm. there's like like people who just like independently own their own aircraft and all of this weird stuff so you you get into this weird space where like you you have you have this class tension and you have this intra-party class tension going on as well because like we've got cloud who's a former soldier We've got Barrett, who's like a mostly committed environmental a- activist. Um, and then we've got like all these other like ragtag people who kind of just join on. But like the through line that connects them all is just like this burning and loathsome hatred for the corporate structure. Mm-hmm. And that's like it's just so fantastic that like, 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 is it, what is that if not class consciousness? That all of these people with all of these disparate backgrounds, all of these disparate goals even, like Vincent, Vincent does not share a lot of the same goals as the rest of the party. Yeah, um, Kate Sith, for that matter, is even a class traitor. Yeah. yeah, but like you know, by and by and through the end, they all unify, and like that's that's very heartwarming. Yeah, yeah. Yuffie, I think actually, now that I stop and think about it, Yuffie can also be viewed as a uh, metaphor for Native peoples because her she her her stake is also like saving her people. She's very one-dimensional as a character, but to her credit, it's for a, it's for good reason. Um, one of the things that stands out to me about FF7 is the way it represents anti-capitalist praxis, because there's no fermenting of a popular revolution in the game. There's no mass movement. There's only this core cadre that you have that is able to overthrow the system, which, of course we know is impossible like that's not how anti-capitalism wins and it's not how capitalism will fall mm-hmm. and i want to challenge the idea that they have class consciousness in the way that the way marxists would understand class consciousness like they they have rich and poor consciousness but there's no talk in the game of capital and labor whatsoever um mm-hmm. That's just like not part of the of their analysis. They have an environmental consciousness and a physical sense of poverty because of this juxtaposition of the the, the plate, the upper plate where all the rich people live, the upper managers and the executives, whatever, and then and then the slums where where the laborers and the middle managers live. But it doesn't bring them to they don't think of term inter- of revolution in terms of like freeing people from the grip of the of the ruling classes monopoly over the means of production basically yeah uh and in fact we see in the later in advent children tifa goes on to maintain her bar she's still a petty bourgeois business owner um they go back to using coal yeah uh, which we learn in the expanded universe mm-hmm. that so, really bugged me yeah yep <laughs> So it's it's a they have a revolution, but it's a deeply deeply flawed revolution, and and it it's due to an incomplete analysis of capital, in my view. Yeah, so I guess I'm I'm less familiar with the expanded universe, having like just played it. <laughs> um, so yeah, I agree with you that they don't necessarily. I mean, I feel like in a video game for kids they're probably not going to be talking explicitly about capital versus labor <laughs> yeah, anyway. yeah. And, um, and, <laughs> and i do feel i do feel like a a full capitalist analysis like a, a class analysis may have taken away from the core themes of the environmentalism 
for sure. Uh, so for me, yeah. it's 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 really enough to to just have them acknowledge it in like these really sort of on the point world building ways. Like once again, having the actual underclass live under the city. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if we want to get into like the expanded stuff, yeah, Advent Children is some bullshit. Yes, <laughs> that science fact right there. But I can't put that on Final Fantasy VII's. Um, yeah. No. Like the fact that the sequel movie is bad is not the game's fault. True. Also true. In the remake, I will say this isn't like a big spoiler, but they speculate as to when they take down Shinra, what they will do, and Tifa talks about rebuilding the bar and expanding the bar yeah but like could you not think of like a bar in an anarchist society that (laughs) that could exist that could that could very well exist we're gonna need places to wet our whistles for sure exactly right so that doesn't necessarily have to mean that they've gone back to capital or anything like that not necessarily like she could she could rebuild it as a as a as a workers co-op like that would be very (laughs) true exactly I, i think like for me like a lot of what we're talking about kind of like underlines something that i really like about final fantasy 7's critique and that's like i think we're we're all absolutely right like this isn't like like at, at, at no point does barrett like sit cloud down and be like listen like here's here's some marxist thought on why you being a soldier for a yeah. colonial expansionist project is bad now the labor theory of value mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. but like it's it's this kind of it's this proto class consciousness right it's this proto yes. sense mm-hmm. of the world that we live in being wrong and like Final Fantasy VII labels the enemies as being corporations, as being these yes. like expansionist capitalistic forces, without kind of like dragging in all all of the jargon. And I think like mm-hmm. there there's something really good about that, right? Because like once you once you get into this jargon, it's easy to get really lost, especially for people who are new to the left. And it's easy, like I mean, like just scroll through like left Twitter timeline anytime you want, and it's just people arguing about whose guy from the 1800s was the most correct. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And like, like that that shifts focus away from our shared goal of ending corporate control of the planet, mm-hmm. and that's something that stays pretty focalized up until like the third act of Final Fantasy VII, where it becomes about cosmic space monsters. But that's good in a different way. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. there, there's. There's even some stuff about the, with the cosmic space monsters that does have some anti-capitalist critique because oh yeah uh, like the whole Sephiroth is named Sephiroth because of the the Jewish connection to the Sephiroth the ten ways in which man can understand God so it's like mm-hmm. the corporation tried to create God because they didn't have enough power and then that turned on them and created so like they are still responsible for the apocalypse although they stopped being the focus of it yeah. Yes. Yeah, they they're, yeah. they're literally they literally yeah. discover Genova while mining, and then instead of being like, oh, we should probably contain this or we should study it carefully, they're like, how can we turn this into a weapon for more money and power? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is why technology is developed in the first place. L- literally, that's a thing Exxon would do. Yes. Mm-hmm. So for anyone who doesn't know, Genova is an alien who crashes onto the planet, and it's kind of like if you've seen like Annihilation or something like for that. For the thing. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like um, this organism that just kills everything and expands, right? Um, <laughs> but but it's not it's not that Genova is necessarily conscious. I think it's just that this is the way that this organism functions, and it happens so happens to just kill every everyone and everything on Earth. So the Shinra are trying to harness this 
in order to, to make a bunch of soldiers really, really powerful to be able to facilitate their further mm. colonialism and yeah. extraction. Yeah, I'm not convinced that Genova is is a fully conscious being. I think Genova is more akin to something like uh, like COVID-19. It's just, it's a base organism that's fulfilling its, its, its programming to, mm-hmm. to expand, to proliferate itself and to inhabit host organisms and to, uh, to consume. The body that they recover in the geological strata that, that Professor Gast and, and Shinra discover, that's actually not like Shinra, that's not, sorry, that's not Genova's true form. That's not Genova's body per se. That is simply the first Cetra that Genova took over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, uh, I, I would liken it, if you wanted to liken it to other pop culture, I really would like liken it to the alien movies and Will and Yutani's obsession with the xenomorphs. Like, yeah. these are like pure, pure killing machines. And what does Will and Yutani want to do? Profit. Mm-hmm. Like we can turn this into something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things I find really interesting about Genova is that if we kind of, I, I guess like like view, view things from like a, li- a little bit of like a larger ecological context, like Genova is part of a naturally occurring ecosystem, whether or not mm-hmm. we interpret Genova as being sentient and intelligent. Because I think like, mm-hmm. d- depending on how you interpret a lot of like the, the like Cetra texts that we find later in the game, like maybe Genova uh, is alive and aware of its actions. Maybe Genova is just like a space space bacteria that crashes on Earth. Yeah. But like, I, I think like the way the game approaches Genova as this thing that needs to be absolutely, neither needs to be weaponized and controlled or totally exterminated. It really, it really kind of like darkly reflects our own view of the world, our own view mm. of like the naturally occurring world, especially when we view things as, as hostile. And like, I will absolutely concede that Genova is literally a space monster. <laughs> and this example like adds that tension in. But I think that like our own real world context, like like how many how many like thousands and thousands of tons are dun- of of like pesticides are dumped in our communities just to stop dandelions from blooming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, uh, actually, Marine and I are going to make a, a podcast episode about. Uh, you know, COVID-19 and all of these war metaphors that are popping oh, up, hell right? yeah. that it's just, you know, we're at war, we're at war with this virus, we need to attack this virus, right? Um, how? By by defunding, you know, healthcare and defunding um, everything that the we, World you, Health you Organization. would need to, yeah, actually fight the, this quote-unquote war, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's an apt comparison. I was going to say, I think I would make Genova more analogous to an invasive species. Mm. Mm, yeah, good point. Like, she's basically in... So, so I, I say she, it. Uh, I just say she because when you fight her, it has the proportions of a woman. Um, it, it It is basically a an introduced species. So it's, it, it's from an ecosystem, but the world of Final Fantasy VII is not its ecosystem. Yes. Yeah. So it has like no natural predator. It's not. It's it's out of balance with the world it finds itself in, and as such, it is able to colonize. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they. I don't know if they intended the the, the colonize um, metaphor in Genova's case. Although there is so much intentional uh, metaphor for colonization in that game that they very well may have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yep. an introduced species, and it has no balance within the within the ecosystem it's introduced. So it's able to just like run amok and uh colonize the world with death 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I'm basically just loving what everyone is touching on here. Um, so some things that I was going to bring up is that, um, yeah, I, again, as I, I was saying, like, you know, of course, they don't necessarily bring up like labor versus capital. But I think that there's so much in here that could inspire people to um, develop class consciousness, whether or not, as Ash said, you have the jargon or not. Um, like in my personal experience teaching about environmental studies, I have found it very, very easy to make the case for anti-capitalism um, when you're using what's going on to the environment, right? Um, and I think that this game is a really great example of the second contradiction of capitalism, um, because you have this corporation that's making money off of, you know, draining the literal life stream of the planet. Um, and through their, I guess, pursuance of increased profit and all the things that they're doing, including, um, you know, trying to weaponize Genova and everything, they are bringing upon themselves, you know, they're creating the, the conditions for their own destruction. They're creating the conditions for the destruction of the planet and the destruction of the very resource that they rely on to continue their business. Right. So I think it's a, it's a really, really great example of that. Um, and it doesn't even really need, need to be named like the, the game does a really great job of making that obvious. Um, and then of course you have the, the class analysis that everyone talks about with Mid Midgar and the slums. Um, you also have really great examples of uneven development, um, and capital flight. Like you're talking about, um, you know, coral and all of these towns that, um, were basically just kind of taken over by the Shinra and then kind of left in, in dust and in dirt. Um, and then you have that juxtaposed to the golden saucer, which is this kind of, it's kind of like. Las Vegas kind it's of like a, super Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it just this very rich, yeah. So you have so many things like that. Um and I think that you have throughout the game, you know, like you're really really identifying with this ragtag group of, you know, poor misfits who are trying to take down this corporation. Um you're also really really empathizing with uh you know just the poor in general like the people who are living in the slums the people who are being exploited by Shinra um and then you even have like the Turks uh the Turks are I guess the security arm of Shinra um like they're the secret service like secret police of Shinra say so secret service of Shinra um and you have scenes where um you know so the secret service of Shinra is supposed to be killing you right because you're this eco-activist group that's running around underground doing all these things um so they're supposed to be killing you um and there's so many scenes where you interact with them like one time you go into a bar i think in is it Costa del Sol no in Wutai oh Wutai and they are like they're on vacation and they're just like oh like we, we should kill them right and then they're just like no 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 no, no we're not going to we're not going to budge like this is the boss's this is uh this is our time not the boss's time like we're not going to do anything that's like on our own time right um, i love that scene that's such a good moment <laughs> i know it, it's really really good moment and like so you just you just have this pushback against this kind of all encompassing you know ideology of just profit seeking right like you have mm -hmm. that that pushback in so many different ways so mm -hmm. i think it's just really beautiful <laughs> They're like, they're a counterparty that's acting at the same time as your party, but in the interest of Shinra. But when you meet, they're so hopelessly outmatched by you that they like, they, but they have to still pretend to be cool. So they're like, ah, we're, we're just getting bored with this fight. We're going to leave now. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, one of the things that bothered me always about the game is the attempt to humanize them because, like, they are Reno, especially Reno, however you pronounce his name, is is a mass murderer. Like, he's the one who presses the button to that releases the locking mechanisms on the plate and yeah. crushes all of Sector Seven. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he- but I think yeah, I think it's also a commentary perhaps on like how like you know working people can just learn to like obey and just do their job just follow in orders just follow orders. Mm-hmm. the banality yep. of evil exactly yeah i i really love that parallel between reno and cloud mm-hmm. because cloud cloud starts off as like i just doing a job you know yeah. not asking questions i just want my money and to get out of here mm-hmm. and and you know we we see where that path leads when reno commits just a, a horrible like beyond disgusting crime yeah and like we see like like that could have been cloud mm-hmm. Rito is unquestionably a villain like he is despite the fact that he's like i'm not gonna fight you because i'm not getting paid right now <laughs> he's still like yeah he's still he's still a bootlicker like yeah, just because he just because he has good boundaries with workplace and <laughs> or with with workplace and um like being on the job and not being on the job just he has like good boundaries for that doesn't mean he's not a villain yeah Got a cool haircut, though. Got to give him that. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Does anyone actually... This is something I'm curious about, and no one may have the answer. Um, does anyone know why they're called the, the, the Turks? No. I always thought it was a really interesting name, and it, did, it never struck me as unintentional, but I never went to go look it up either. I don't know. Damn. Because, like, it, it, it causes images of the Young Turks, which was, like, the... Not, not, not the media outfit, like True. the actual historical. I was gonna say un- union busting group. is very disgusting. Yes, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have no particular love for for, for Jank Uger. So, um, yeah. I, I was a long time ago. I was a big fan of theirs, and then like Jank's misogyny was just like, nope. Yeah, and that was before that was before the union busting stuff. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about the Turks, um, but uh, yeah, I think. Everyone's given uh, really great uh, examples of how the the game has treated anti-capitalism and resistance. Um, what about any more perhaps environmental themes that anyone wanted to bring up? Um, uh, when I was thinking about weapon, I was thinking a lot about Gaia <laughs> <laughs> and this kind of idea of nature's revenge, right? Like we've just we've just described COVID as being analogous to perhaps Genova, but I was thinking of. Uh, and, and I need I need to be careful here because you can very easily wade into eco-fascist territory. But, you know, so for, again, for anyone who doesn't know, Weapon are these giant monsters that the Earth has created um, in order to protect it, basically. Um, and they go out and they are just fucking shit up. Like they're just going mm-hmm. to, to, you know, crush Shinra operations and mm-hmm. like crush Midgar. In a gameplay sense, they're the they're the, the end game. So you beat the game, they are like this even bigger thing that you can go fight uh, if you want to mm-hmm. keep the, the game going for a little bit. Uh, I have never right. successfully beat one. Oh, really? Nope. I'm not very oh, yeah. interesting. I'm not very good at uh at at um I think no, I think I beat the red one, but there's three oh, of Oh, the them. red one's harder. Uh, there there was one of them where like you could trick it. You could trick it and I was able to beat it by tricking it. Yeah. Um Yeah, that's a ru- ruby <laughs> weapon you can con your way to win that one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that one I beat, but I never I didn't I never beat any of them fairly and I didn't beat the other two. It's interesting because when when you think about it, the planet 
the planet gives birth to the weapons, but the planet also provides you with all the materia you need to be able to defeat them too. And mm -hmm. in the, the materia that grows naturally and not synthetically like the way uh, Shinra creates them uh, is far more powerful than synthetic materia. And if you get a gold chocobo and you go to the materia caves, you get <laughs> you get quadra magic, knights of the round, mime, and HPMP switch. And with those four yep. things, you can defeat any of the weapons. I definitely, I definitely had knights of the round. So yes, the chocobos are not vegan. Yeah. Just wanted to. Oh yeah, we're so, getting to the so non-veganism of, yeah. of, of, <laughs> of chocobo racing and breeding. That's that, that's true. Yeah. That's true. The, the yeah. this is uh, the kennel club for chocobos is pretty pretty off-putting. Yeah. Yeah, chocobos are giant like ostriches, kind of that you ride around. Yeah. They're cuter than ostriches. <laughs> They're so. cute, but then you have. There's one point you have to breed them and race them and like all this stuff, right? So anyway, and there's also no gestation period in the game with breeding them. It's like, oh, yeah. the next one's born and it's adult, and you can ride it right away. It's like <laughs> chocobos are efficient. <laughs> well, they're yeah. magical beasts, I guess, but that's the excuse, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah, coming back to this, I, um, I like I, again, I don't want to wait until like eco-fascist kind of areas here um but you know like a lot of people are saying like oh well I, the eco-fascist take on COVID-19 is that oh you know COVID is uh you know taking out our overpopulation and this is causing pollution to go down um and you know therefore this is good and whatever this is nature striking yeah. back um the, the we are we are the virus meme yeah we are the virus mm -hmm. right <laughs> um but, you know, leftists are reappropriating that and saying, no, 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 capitalism is the virus, right? The only reason that pollution is going down right now is because all of our, you know, all of our industry is shut down, right? All of our, like our, our mass consumption engine is, is shut down. Yeah. So many of our inessential jobs are shut down. Um, all of our air, air tra travel is shut down, which causes so much pollution. Um, so... It, like in a sense, I, like when I when this thing first happened, obviously I'm like this is a horrible thing. Um, but I, if you think about the Gaia hypothesis, right, like this idea that um, the Earth is this um, kind of all-encompassing organism, and that if it weren't for the Earth acting as a single organism and kind of protecting itself, then actually our temperature should be a lot higher than it is right now right there's a lot of examples of, of that kind of thing and so there's this kind of mysterious like oh gaia is somehow regulating things or, or doing things or setting off different processes or whatever to try and um i guess lessen the impact that that's happening right um so yeah i mean there's a reading of of that that is like oh yeah shutting down capitalism destroying capitalism um destroying extractive industry although i know extractive industry is a lot uh, is still happening right now um especially on wet'suwet'en territory which is terrible yeah the man camps mining industry all that still active yeah considered still active. essential by the canadian government which is utter and complete bullshit it's yeah it's such it's fucking trash infuriating it's disgusting it's disgusting I mean, ca canada is the the marketing and pr firm of of these of extraction corporations so if you, from canada's perspective there this is essential because canada is extraction yeah it's canada true. is the virus it's true. <laughs> uh, you'll 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 get no disagreement from me there but yeah so so 
you know, weapon, I think, can can similarly be seen as this thing that the, the earth is created that's going to destroy um, capital, right? Because it's like, all right, that's enough. You know, we, we I told you we only had 10 years to shut this down, maybe, maybe 18 months or something. You didn't do anything. So here's the shutdown. Um, and weapon is like out there doing that. But the thing is that um, both COVID and weapon, if we're considering them as this, these kind of pandemics, um, you know, they do hold the no- normal operation of capitalism and consumerism, but both are also incredibly indiscriminate in who they kill, right? So weapon also just kills innocent people. Um, and that's why Avalanche, because at first I was like, why is Avalanche going to kill weapon? Like I thought weapon was the planet, um, the planet's defense against all of this stuff, you know? So like, why are you killing the planet's weapon? But then it's like, okay, well, the weapon is indiscriminate <laughs> in like who it's killing, because it can't know. And I think I just thought that was kind of a good analogy for kind of what's going on and what will go on with, with climate catastrophe and things in the future, right? Like it's going to be in, in, incredibly indiscriminate in who is taken out and, and probably actually the poorest people and the most marginalized people and the people who have not contributed to this problem are the ones who are going to be killed along with, you know, capitalism being halted, which is exactly what's happening with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I just thought that was like a, an interesting parallel. To yeah. Yeah. I find, I find weapon to be really interesting and in, inside of like the context of final fantasy and both are, I guess, lived experience. But um, one, one thing that I always find to be really interesting is when we, when we talk about climate catastrophe, when we talk about COVID, when we talk about pollution, all these things, we, we frame it as the world is dying and the world is ending, right? We, mm-hmm. we externalize yeah. what's going on, right? It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not a humanity problem. It's a problem for the rock that we live on. Yeah. And I, I think like weapon, weapon does a really cool trick that it kind of inverts this because what weapon is like, okay, like you, you can view weapon with the same kind of lens you view like poor air quality or like uh, rising sea levels or the soil depletion these things that the planet is quote unquote doing to, to destroy this thing that's harming it. Right. And it, and it re agentializes the planet and it kind of shifts the focus back to like, Oh no, this is something we're doing to harm ourselves. We're waking up these monstrosities mm-hmm. and they're going to hurt us. Cause like yes. <laughs> not to, not to drag in another like uh, external text to final fantasy seven, but like the, the only spinoff game I currently recognize is Dirge of Cerebus. <laughs> Yeah, and um, and so Dirt Dirt of Cerebus was the spinoff game focusing on uh, Vincent Valentine, one of the optional uh, party members you can get in the game. But uh, in in the game, you find out about the the biggest and baddest weapon, Omega Weapon, and Omega Weapon doesn't exist to uh, destroy humanity or the planet. It just exists to evacuate the life force and fly away to a new planet. And and you kind of realize that, like, no, the planet's going to live. The the, the life force, Gaia, however, whatever framework you want to use to recognize the essential life of Earth, that will outlast humanity. The only thing that we can threaten and the only thing that we can really destroy is ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It will take... We could do the worst damage possible and we won't... Humanity won't exist anymore, but... In fifty to a hundred thousand years, the planet will fully recover. Oh yeah, I mean, like rats, trees, you know, and bugs—they yeah. they will last us and they'll rebuild. Absolutely. Oh yeah. I was I was just I want to ask, what do people think of the fact then that the weapons are presented as an enemy 
that you can fight and kill and as a, for for challenge mm-hmm. within the <laughs> ga- within the mechanics of the game. I thought that was kind of fucked up. We focus a lot on narrative, but we actually haven't focused a lot on like how gameplay uh, tells stories. Yeah, Ooh, talk to me about ludology. Let's do this. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's worth noting that in the original Japanese release, Emerald and Ruby Weapon were not available as boss fights. So while they existed in the cutscene, I think, there was five of them that were released by the planet. Sapphire, which is destroyed by the Junon big gun, uh, mm-hmm. and Diamond, which is destroyed by the sister Ray, uh, and then Ultima Weapon, which is destroyed by the party, though you don't have to do it. Though I, Ultimate Weapon must have been in the original though, because that's how you get Cloud's ultimate weapon. And then there's Emerald and Ruby who are, that yeah. are just like chilling, and were added to the game in the North American release as an extra challenge. Mm-hmm. I think the motivation behind that was because super bosses were appearing in other RPGs, including ones made by Square Enix. Oh yeah, so uh, I'm-, I'm just speculating here, really. Yeah, uh, and that they wanted to add something because Sephiroth. Once you get once you once you're like level sixty something and you have like pretty good materia, Sephiroth is basically a pushover. Oh yeah, you can you can demolish him with Knights of the Round. Like he is not a hard fight once oh, you have yeah. Knights of the Round. Even before Knights of the Round, Mexi didn't have Knights of the Round. Sk- gotta have that ribbon equipped. Mexi, for the record, I just want to say this: wiped the floor with Sephiroth, like <laughs> crushed his shit. In. Golf clap. Yeah, and um, did not have Knights of the Round. Did not have Knights of the Round. <laughs> no. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I can see why from a developer standpoint, they'd want to put harder bosses in there. Yeah, I, I, I'm more, and I, I don't, I don't think when they added them in, they were intending to send a message, but we're aggressively, we're, we're aggressively analyzing this game anyway, so let's aggressively analyze. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so I thought it was kind of fucked up. But I guess if we're thinking about it, like if I am making the comparison between weapon and like COVID or weapon and some other kind of natural disaster that Gaia could unleash to try to stop capital or whatever, um, given the fact that that would indiscriminately kill humans, then we would have to, you know, take action to... Um, combat it in some way although i don't like combat or whatever we would have to take some action right if if the most marginal in our society were dying which they are um under covid Mm -hmm. um you know we we do have to take some action against whatever that thing is um but yeah i remember when we first encountered weapon and we had to fight and destroy it i was like hang on isn't this i thought we were doing all everything that we're doing is to save the planet and here the planet is creating these these things to help save itself and stop what's going on and we're gonna we're gonna kill it and allow this to go on (laughs) well the first one you fight is ultima weapon but it just attacks medeal which is this tiny village that's like a yeah so it makes sense you'd want to defend the village in that instance but yeah of course but yeah it's just just in terms of the storyline it's like Mm -hmm. what yeah it 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 would have made so on a narrative sense not not necessarily gameplay sense but on a narrative sense it would have made more sense if after uh, you stop um, Shinra and sort of stop the consumption of the plant's life force. If the if the weapons just stopped, like mm-hmm. that would make more narrative sense. 
Yes. Um, but then, then you wouldn't have your end game bosses. So yeah. yeah, I mean, this is this is always a tension between gameplay and narrative that all video games have to sort of deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's also an RPG, uh, an issue with like with RPGs in general, where like a big part of the game is just murdering the local wildlife as, yeah. you, as you're running around just <laughs> yeah. doing stuff. Oh yeah, and. Like- yeah, like when when Emerald and you know Emerald and Ruby Weapon like they're deployed, like they're out there, but they're just chilling. Yeah. You know, one's chilling underwater, one's chilling in the desert and they're not like attacking anything unlike Ultima Weapon, but um yeah, like the party takes it upon themselves to be like, okay, now we're going to kill these giant fuckers. So, but it it to me it's like taking out mobs. It's the same it's the same mentality is just fighting regular mobs as you're like running around the world map fighting like birds and beasts and stuff like that yeah no i mean it's definitely an issue with rpgs as a genre uh be they Mm -hmm. tabletop or be they video games um like because through the the mechanics for leveling up are all through violence Mm -hmm. so they so with with a lack of any other means of progression everything just sort of becomes a fight and with everything mm-hmm. becoming a fight then like you can't progress any other way so it's a, it's a limit of the game tools uh and i have a like i have a lot to say with like even more recent western rpgs like the witcher and how the witcher views like you just go through in like the witcher or dragon age just pulling up every plant you see being like crafty materials and you never <laughs> you never you never like give back you never you never contribute you just can take pull from pull from the ecosystem uh i hate the witcher so much <laughs> i i could i couldn't hold that back the witcher is just like you you play a white dude who goes around indiscriminately exterminating the other that is that's that's the game. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't get it. Shrug. If, if something doesn't match you and your culture, it must be dead now. <laughs> I I only recently played the third one after getting pestered and playing it. It's it's a, it's a thing where I really do enjoy the narrative, but I uh the what the narrative is about and what the gameplay is about don't necessarily sync up perfectly. Because the whole thing with The Witcher is he's supposed to be like in tune, and that's what lets him kill monsters. But then he just uh, never contributes back to the environment which he belongs to unless it's required for the narrative. Uh, and, like, he, every now and then he, like, will chill with... He'll be like, oh, hey, this Boglin is... I, I'll, I'll get along with this Boglin, and I'll just hang out with them because this Boglin can give me information. But that's those, those moments are few and far between, and mostly you're just killing everything. Uh, and it, it, this is a challenge with RPGs in general. Uh, once mm-hmm. again, because because all the progression systems are um, associated with combat and violence, you're in an issue where you just create a, a gameplay loop where the entire narrative has to be about violence. Which, I mean, that's the problem with all video games. It just I think it becomes really noticeable in RPGs with their sort of really in-depth stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think... Um from like a design perspective, like it's all, it's all about systems, right? And when you're making systems for play, it's really, really, really easy to convert violence into code. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Just on a, on a raw level, it's really because hit and miss is already a binary system. So we're already in the groove with this. Yeah. But it's incredibly different, difficult to, to have dialogue 
get get that same treatment, right? Because most most dialogue systems are just awful, and it's like you get like mean you get options that are just like say nice thing, say mean thing, mm-hmm. attempt to lie. Yeah, you know, and it's just it's so transparent. Mm-hmm. I re- but um, I I really like the existence of weapon because I think like we 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 do have to stop the weapon the weapons plural i guess at some point if we want to continue living as a species mm-hmm. and like the the indis- i don't think that the violence of the weapons is necessarily indiscriminate right because the the bad guy from the perspective of gaia is is literally humanity yeah you know it's it's humans who created shinra it's humans who refuse to stop it it's humans who create sephiroth and and, and rehabilitate genova mm-hmm. and so like from the 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 planet is kind of like going to the root of its own problem for a solution here and i think we can we can use that as kind of like because you you can use that and you can pivot to eco-fascism and do the whole the humanity is the virus thing mm-hmm. or you can pivot and be like okay well if the problem is so root then we need a an equally root solution we need to reinvent our society and our economic systems yeah in order to mm-hmm. shift away from these destructive forces yeah the the whole idea that like we should just accept our extinction instead of being like, no, we we can we can be better. We can yeah. <laughs> we can we can just stop doing the things that are causing the problem. Isn't that better than just right? <laughs> dying? But the stonks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, does anyone have anything else to say about the environmental themes before we move on to colonialism? I think there's something to be said for like I'm firmly agnostic and I'm I usually don't have much to say about things like Gaia theory, but which law of energy is it or thermodynamics that um, energy can't be uh, created or destroyed and only change form? Yeah, that's a nice comforting thought. At the end of the day, I think for me at least that everything is connected. Mm-hmm. The interconnectedness of all things. Well, yeah. Ultimately, we live in a. In, ultimately, Earth is a closed system, um, and everything is interwoven into this closed system, and we are uh, we are part of that. Yes. Yeah. Firmly believe. Oh, and I would. There's one more thing I'd like to say about um, RPGs and relentless killing. There is a game. I forget what it's called. It was only released in Japan, and then it was released on Switch here uh, recently. And it's a reversed RPG where the bad guy in the game is actually a hero who goes around the countryside like murdering wildlife. And you as the <laughs> you as the player need to like deliver the souls of the things that uh that they kill like back into their bodies and bring them back to life. Interesting. Um, yeah, I forget what it's called. Someone will someone listening to this will know what I'm talking about. That that's really neat. I, I'll look that up. I don't have a switch, but I'll I'll see if I can like find a way to play it um for sure yeah the the one game that i think does although it does also have a lot of violence in it that does do like social programming right would be like the persona series which has like extensive Mm -hmm. systems for representing like connections and social systems uh that aren't just violence we'll check out um okay so i wanted to move on to i guess themes around colonialism and indigeneity so we talked a bit about red 13 or nanaki um, and representing indigeneity. Um, so I don't know if anyone wants to give kind of just like a recap of Nanaki's story. But we also have the Setra, which we haven't talked about. So basically the game frames, I guess, this group of 
quote unquote ancients. There's this group of yeah ancients, I guess, um, called the Setra, and they used to be able to speak with the planets. Um, I think that's probably a metaphor for them living more in reciprocity with the planet before, uh, you know, Shinra took over. And they were headed towards the promised land. And then certain, I guess, groups of them decided to abandon that their way of life and settle and kind of develop capitalist town sites. And then I guess those people became the people who, I guess, led to Shinra. Um, so, yeah, I'm wondering what we think about the Setra. Are they also meant to represent indigeneity? Um, is this handled poorly or in a problematic way uh same with the naki uh yeah thoughts i'll, I'll throw this to green first uh because i think you'll probably have the most relevant uh insights it's weird i didn't read the centra as indigenous although now that you bring it up like of course i read them almost as more uh, i guess I, I get like there's a lot of christian themes in the game that we have not really talked about um and i kind of viewed them as being more analogous to almost like Jewish mystics, like communing with God, because of course, like Sephiroth is called Sephiroth because he is tied to the, I can understand God. So I like, I really read them really as being more Christian in theme. Uh, so I just, I read them as being very Christian, not as being um, very indigenous so, but now that you bring it up, like, I totally see it. That just was not my initial reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Sephiroth wasn't a Setra, right? I'm just, I'm more talking about how the game's messaging rather than, rather than, so I, I wasn't a Setra, but the game is using sort of Christian messaging to, to make its point. Um, okay. When I, when I was reading it, I was looking for that messaging. So I was looking at more as like ancient Christians communing with God rather than, mm-hmm. Uh, an indigenous perspective. Interesting. Oh, well, do you want to go into the Christian uh, metaphor, I guess, that you drew from it? Because I, I didn't take that. Maybe I don't know enough about Christianity. <laughs> well, uh, this is where this is where me not having played the game in a while kind, kind of does do da- does does harm because I haven't played it in like probably a decade. So if someone else wants to wants wants to speak, just give me a second to form my thoughts here. Yeah, yeah, I guess I could I could throw out my two cents about kind of like how how I view the Cetra. So so I see them as like like a, a pre-capitalist human. Mm-hmm. You know, like like they're mm-hmm. they're like they're druidic. They're they exist in, in, in a much tighter harmony with the natural world around them. Mm-hmm. And like there there's something that we feel that we've lost, you know, like mm-hmm. like there are those Christian themes with the Cetra, right? And like like because you because you have this fall in Eden. But you know we we live in a stolen Eden, right? Like like the the Jeff Bezoses of the world have have robbed us of of the rightful beauty of the world we live in, and and our freedom to experience it, right? And if you think back, like how many generations of your own ancestors have have just toiled away and spent most of their lives just just shuffling at some job for some other guy to make more money, and like the the Cetra represents something that came before that. Right, like they're they're this kind of like ontological antediluvian uh, human purity, you know, that kind of spans all cultures. And there's 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 something painful in that. Like there's a sense of loss, but I think that that pain is a really good thing to feel. It's good to be in that moment because you know the the pain of loss is a reminder of what you can have again. 
and that's kind of how I view the Cetra. You know, like uh, Eris or Aerith, <laughs> if you want to be like super proper or whatever. Um, she she's the last surviving Cetra. She's a half Cetra, and like like she she dies through the course of the movie. So the connection is totally severed. But the hope of what it represents can't be. Mm-hmm. You know, like like you you can never go back to 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 Eden, right? Like that's the whole point. Like once. Mm-hmm. Once you're out, you're out. You know, you can't return to that same space because leaving it fundamentally changes you. Uh, but you you can still recreate something like that. We can still rebuild a much better world and bring ourselves into this kind of mythological harmony that we share across cultures. Yeah. I mean, the, the Eden metaphor really gets like why I was reading a Christian reading on this because... I, I really viewed them as being like sort of an Adam and Eve template, although they're civilization, not two individuals. But I, I really did read them more as being like, hey, we're we're this proto-idealistic human that are or the humanoid race that are fallen due to the pow- powers and folly of man. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I, I guess, just the idea of the promised land itself is a little bit Christian, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, yeah, I can see that now that you're bringing it up, or this idea of of Eden. Um, I guess, yeah, to me, I, I guess I I associated the Cetra with, um, you know, being on the land for for so long that they were able to speak with the planet, and I, I guess I mm-hmm. saw that as like a metaphor for reciprocity or something like that, and then yeah. kind of. Um, you know, as as they were ex- increasingly exterminated, now we've just given way to this like Western capitalist exploitative thing. Yeah, you bring it up. No, you bring it up. I totally see it. I totally see it now that you bring it up. It's just not where. Yeah, I also thought the temple of the agents looked kind of Mayan. Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, but I see this other this other reading as well. Um, so I guess that kind of moves to this idea of the promised land, right? And what that is meant to represent. Um, cause at first I wasn't sure I was like, is it a place? Is it a, is it a way of living? Like that Ash said that, you know, there's hope that we can return to, you know, mm-hmm. a more, um, Edenic way of living. Um, but then Jacob kind of made me think that maybe it's actually just supposed to be heaven. Like it is supposed yeah. to be like when the, you die. The three prevailing views on what the promised land is, is one, uh, the most literal reading, which is the the place where the white and black materia can be used because there's enough latent spirit energy around that those materials just work, which means the area in and around the Northern crater. I don't think that's <laughs> correct though. Um, then there's, um, that's, that's also Shinra's view of, of, of what the promised land is too, a place of abundant Mako energy. Yeah. That, that was, that was my reading, but. Yeah. I mean, it, there, there's credence to that. I mean, that's the only place where the white and black material can be used. So it may, it, that may be true. Then there's the, also the view that it's, that we've stated earlier, which is that it's a, um, a state of living in reciprocity with mm-hmm. nature. And then the third view is that it is uh, returning to the planet and that the, when your soul returns to the planet, your spirit energy, um, then you've, you've reached the promised land. Yeah. Cause I, like the ending of this, um, the like life stream comes up to basically protect the earth from meteor, which is uh, Sephiroth, I guess, summons this meteor to come crash into the earth 
with the black materia because um, we'll get to it. He's pretty traumatized. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, so, it, but it kind of just leaves you at that. And I guess I kind of just assumed like, oh, great. The live stream saved everyone and the planet. And then you see this cutscene of Nanaki um, who After is- the credits. Yeah, mm-hmm. after the credits, Nanaki. So yeah, Nanaki is representing an indigeneity. I thought it might be a little bit problematic that he was um, like animalized. Like now that I've, I guess, yeah. read more from Afco or whatever. But um, anyway, so he's actually a giant cat. Yeah. Um, and so he's running with like his two little kids. He apparently had cubs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's running up and then he looks over Midgar, which was this uh, before it was that fascist city state that was, you know, sucking up all the Mako energy. Um, and he looks over and it's just like, a completely like solar punk esque, beautiful mm-hmm. kind of like the city is overgrown. So I was like, oh, isn't that wonderful? The live stream saved everyone and saved the planet. Um, but then uh, Jacob was telling me like, oh, actually, th- like there's an alternate reading that um, actually humanity was destroyed. Um, so like Nanaki is still alive. But yeah, I guess humanity was destroyed so that the earth could rebound. And that's why like Marlene, when she's looking out the window, sees Ares and Ares is obviously dead. And we knew that. And then they're all like, oh, we can go be with Ares now. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, I actually subscribe to this theory that, um, Holy deems humanity, uh, unworthy living on earth and, and zaps everyone into the live stream at the moment, uh, where the live stream converges with Holy, Mm. uh, and Bugenhagen, who's like, uh, Nanaki, Nanaki, uh, Red 13, Nanaki calls Bugenhagen his grandfather. He's like the elder at Cosmo Canyon, even tells the party, like, when you summon Holy, it'll be up to Holy to decide whether humanity is worthy of persisting or not. And um, what gave this this theory, which used to be just a fan theory, more way more credibility was that in, I believe, 2004, 2005, when both of the lead developers on FF7, uh, Yoshinori Kitase and Hironobu, Hironobu Sakaguchi were interviewed. They both said that humanity was destroyed at the end of FF7. Oh, I didn't realize they had that flow, said it? Yup. Word, word of God came down. It was like, yes, this happened. <laughs> <laughs> that to me is like, well, shit, because this whole time it's like an amazing anti-capitalist, um, you know, anti-colonial uh pro environmental discourse and then at the end it's like yep humanity's the virus yeah well (laughs) so well well on that note and i can't get i don't know how to talk about this without getting spoilery into the remake but the game is self-aware and they're 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 setting up the ending of the original ff7 as the quote-unquote bad ending yeah yeah so this is okay. i i haven't played uh the remake yet but i do know like mm-hmm. i am not a person who cares about spoilers so uh i do know details about how it ends and mm-hmm. i do know that it does set up a new ending mm-hmm. yeah well, that's good because yeah, the whole way it's it's doing such an amazing job, mm-hmm. and then it's like, oh, actually, everyone's to blame, not yeah. just the rich and powerful Shinra. Yeah. Well, Aries says in in the remake and also in one of the trailers, so this isn't a spoiler. She says, "I want to save everyone and the planet," 
and she is aware she, she knows what's up she's more mysterious in the remake and she knows much more than she's letting on and i think she's looking for a way to save humanity and the planet sweet yeah because she rocks yes um all right does anyone have any more i guess themes around colonialism that they wanted Uh, to bring up and discuss yeah so we 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 didn't we didn't talk about the anunnaki that much i you you specifically asked on them and i got caught up on the the other issue um but yeah like i don't know maybe if humanity does get destroyed the anunnaki being representative of by cat people is the good thing to sort of represent that like hey the like um because then you can read human-bodied people as not everyone being the issue, but mm-hmm. human body people representing colonialism, yeah, and then non-human body people being like, no, these are uh, these are indigenous people or or non like people who don't who mm-hmm. don't believe in the the resource extraction economy, and that mm-hmm. they are still spared. Uh, so yes. it it it's it's an extra layer of metaphor, but. You can definitely yeah, that's interesting. you can definitely be like, no, well not all of humanity wasn't destroyed, just like these sort of bipedal monkey people that represent <laughs> that that very that very literally represent um whiteness. Yeah, whiteness and colonialism. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Yeah. Interesting. Now, needing needing to represent indigeneity in that context as animals, I mean, there's a conversation to be had there. Once again, I don't necessarily have an issue with the Anunnaki because it's a fantasy world, and I think that they're generally well done, but, like, it's a problem with, like, Warcraft uses native imagery to talk about the orcs all the fucking time, and it's the fucking worst. Oh, yeah. It's the fucking worst. Yep. It's the fucking worst. Um, so... Within the context of just Final Fantasy, I don't necessarily mind the Anunnaki, but if you get into like a larger context of representing indigenous peoples as animals in video game spaces and in fantasy spaces, it does become a much larger issue. Yes. Um, and yeah, then it becomes a problem because then you're 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 what you're doing is you are dehumanizing indigenous people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Totally. Collapsing them into nature and anima- animalizing and dehumanizing. Yeah. And also romanticizing. Mm-hmm. Shinra heavily romanticizes the shet- the Setra, right? Mm-hmm. This is oh, yeah. this is yeah. made even more apparent in the remake. Uh, I don't want to get into it. There's an incredible scene in the remake that really hammers this home. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the idea that like that like indigenous people can communicate with the planet or like you know you just set them down like anywhere in nature and they'll thrive just because like that's just the way you know like all these races yeah that's why i think i think that might be where my head went to because i mean you're right the temple is absolutely a mayan temple and i just kind of rolled my eyes at it i was like that's dumb (laughs) um but yeah that's where you get into like the issue of like um oh native people can commune with the earth it's like no that's not that's not that's not right like yes. having 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 a relationship with the earth and like actually communing with the spirit of the earth are different things yes. <laughs> and like yeah that's yeah. that's 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 a misreading of what's happening it's a very like like understanding that you are part of a system uh and an mm-hmm. ecosystem understanding your place in that system and how you have responsibility to maintain your place in that system is very different than I'm going to go talk to this tree. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Although I do love doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also love hugging them, truth yeah. be told. Yes. Uh, there's another angle about indigeneity in this game that doesn't get talked about. I've never seen it talked about, really. Uh, and it's the fact that, uh, you know, Japan... The, the Yamato people, or what mm-hmm. we'd refer to as Japanese people, are actually not indigenous to Japan. Nope. Um, and they, uh, when they expanded into Japan from China, they annihilated the indigenous people well, there, on the there islands. Are, there are still Japan. indigenous peoples on, on the islands of Japan. Yes, I don't know that there much are. about them. Uh, the, I, Ainu, the Ainu people in the north and Ryukyuan people who live yeah. in Okinawa. Yeah. And up until coincidentally the late 90s, the Ainu people were required to carry identification saying, I am not Japanese yeah. on them. Yeah. I mean, so, like I also have like a, a card that identifies me as, not not, the, not saying I'm not Canadian, but it ident- does identify me as a citizen of the Metsi nations here in Canada. So I mean that's that's mm-hmm. a thing that like all indigenous people kind of live with to one degree or another. I do know some some indigenous people who refuse to um, get get like either their status cards or their citizenship cards depending on what nation you are and treaties and all that mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just like to say for the record, I just like to say for the record. Um, while I just said that uh, Yamato people are not necessarily indigenous to Japan. That does not mean in any way that I support like colonization of Japan. Oh yeah, no, no, no. I'm, like, I'm, not, I'm not saying you are. Yeah. I'm not saying you are. <laughs> no, um, I know, I know that. I just needed to say that before I got in serious shit. Okay. Um. Yeah. Like, uh, they have a they have a right to live there. They've been there for two thousand years. So yeah. Um. But I just I suppose I just wanted to comment on the fact that like the Anu uh, had to carry cards that they were not Japanese, and I just, that's a very mm-hmm. common indigenous experience. Um, yes. Yes. But yeah. I, I. I wonder if. Uh, I was just. I was just as an idle thought. Um. This occurred to me earlier in the conversation. And I never went back to it. I wonder if, like, because Yuffie is obviously supposed to represent Japanese culture and Japanese people in this game that is ostensibly American, although like a, a Japanese take on America. I, I wonder if she with 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 that presentation of sort of indigeneity or if she is supposed to represent the Ainu as well. And like, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I don't know what their intent on that was. It's just an idle thought. Mm-hmm. There's very little Ainu representation, though it does exist. Uh, Ainu representation in Japanese video games. Like there's a few, there's a, several, I think one or two characters in the Samurai Showdown series who are Ainu. Um, I can't think of very many others. Yeah. But... It's, but they were definitely using this game to try to talk about indigeneity. Yeah. And, and yeah, the annihilation of, of indigenous culture. Yeah. The only, like, major work of Ainu people outside of Studio Ghibli I can think of would be David Max Kabuki. And, like, David Max is indigenous, but he's, uh, like, Cheyenne. He is, he's a, he's a Cheyenne uh, dude who... Uh, his whose wife is Japanese, and he, uh, I don't know if he still lives in Japan, but he did live in Japan for a while. And he, the major main character of his book Kabuki is um, Ainu, but it's the only like representation of Ainu people I can think of in pop culture, and like that is um, multiple layers removed from actual Ainu people, uh, unless his wife's Ainu. That's possible. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so uh, just moving on to the the next set of themes. Uh, so I wanted to talk about racism and patriarchy in the game. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess the most obvious example of racism would be Barrett, who is the only black person in the game. Oh, there's other black people. He's the only black playable character. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's also like the only black character in most of Final Fantasy, period. Yep. Like there's not there's not another black character in Final Fantasy until 13. Yes. <laughs> and he's also the only Final Fantasy character to never make an appearance in Kingdom Hearts. Or the only Final Fantasy 7 character to never make an appearance in Kingdom Hearts. Like I mean obviously we should state for the record just for people who are who are not familiar none of us are black. Right. Uh I'm I'm indigenous but I'm like I'm very white passing. So uh, I, I just want to make that very clear. Yeah, we are we are none of us uh, subject to colorism. True. Yes. If you want to talk about like, the difference between and I I am I am subject to anti-indigeneity, but I do not consider myself subject to racism. Those are different things. There's a whole conversation to be had there. Uh, I don't think there's necessarily space for it, but uh, I just I, I feel like that needs to be clarified for any of the listeners before we we pursue on this topic. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Barrett, he's <laughs> a a very is large personality. But yeah, I mean they do they fall back on a lot of like stereotypes, I guess. In his he's yeah. he's a jive talking angry black guy with a gun. I mean, it's hard sure. to get he's Mr. That. T. I mean, like he's he's Mr. He's T, readily yeah. he's readily a clone of Mr. Yeah, T. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know there there aren't a lot of black people in Japan. And when they were designing him, they looked to American pop culture and what was airing when these people were in their formative years, but the A-team. So, but I also feel like at this point in the story, everyone is putting on airs. Everyone is, and we'll we'll talk about this more when we get into the, when we talk about trauma uh, in the context of this game, but like everyone is trying to be something they're not and, and bear it. Barrett is hiding a lot of shame and guilt with, with these, with his persona. I believe that's true, but I think like that that can't obscure the fact that Barrett's persona is like this intensely racist caricature. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, like I think like like those Barrett has some compl- complexity, especially when we get into his adoption of Marlene mm-hmm. and his his real motivations and concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, as like the only good boomer, but like. <sighs> it's still like you, you you can't like i can't extract barrett from the fact that like he is he's just like such a stock racist character mm-hmm. that it makes it makes kind of like the the scenes where barrett does anything are almost like weirdly jarring right because all the other characters are allowed a lot of like emotive space to mm-hmm. kind of settle into who they are and then barrett is just like Mr. T. Mr. T is yeah. just crashing into Final Fantasy every yeah. time Barrett gets dialogue, and it's mm-hmm. just the most jarring thing for my play experience. Ash, have you, have you start, started playing the remake, or if you're basing that off of the original? Because I thought the original, like, obviously his dialogue that you read on screen was racist. <laughs> like, in, in, like, you could yeah, Oh, yeah, you could, it's, it's sight dialect, yeah. Yeah, right. But I guess it was like a bit better for me in the original because I could just kind of maybe imagine 
my own idea of what he might sound mm-hmm. like. Whereas you, you can imagine not Mr. T voice. Yes. Yeah. And then in the the remake, I was like, oh, that's not how I imagined Barrett's. <laughs> this is this is where my background as a character designer and artist really comes in. So what 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 jumped to me about Barrett? So. Uh, part of Barrett's portrayal in the Final Fantasy Remake demo is a big reason why I haven't picked it up yet. Um, and it, for me, it extends past the voice. So the voice is a problem. But, uh, so, if you, if you play the original Final Fantasy, they have, like, they are very simple, early polygonal characters. They're not emotive. They, so, in order to, to sort of create emotion... They have these really exaggerated gestures, like because because all of the emotional context is done through body language. They don't have the processing power to render facial animation. Right. And when they brought that into the remake, they downplayed everyone else's body language. Um, so they weren't like minstrel actors anymore. They were they were they were fully rendered people. True. Uh, with subtle subtle body movements. Except Barrett. Mm-hmm. Barrett is still moving with these extremely exaggerated body motions. And more than his voice, I was just like, this is like they are they are treating him like a character from uh from a like old school vaudeville play. Yeah. As a po where everyone else gets these subtle emotional ticks. Mm-hmm. And it was so jarring. Uh, so for me, it was more his his animation and how exaggerated, um, bombastic, and even the way they they frame him with the camera, uh, the camera moves like a lot more dramatically around him. Uh, and it just compared to like the the other characters that get like all get to be a lot more subtle in how they move. Yeah, yeah. If we yeah. if we want to get like really into Barrett's character design, like. So much of the artistic landscape for Final Fantasy comes from the just like breathtaking beauty of Yoshitaka Amano's artwork. Mm-hmm. Like by far my favorite illustrator, um, Yoshitaka Amano just just makes fantastic art. Oh yeah, he's uh, fantastic. And a lot of a lot of his art becomes the the character design and the spirit for the game of Final Fantasy. It really shapes where the game goes visually. Uh, do you want to know who doesn't have did, didn't have Yoshitaka Amano artwork? Mm. Barrett Wallace. There was yeah. there might be one. Um, like like I have like the the collected edition of like Yoshitakomano's art. I definitely have seen. You, really is 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 there Yoshitakomano artwork for Barrett? Because I've only ever seen one that might be. There there is there is there is at least one. I have seen it. Uh, Yoshitakomano is why I became a watercolor painter. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, there is at least one painting of of uh, of Barrett by Yoshitaka Amano, but I think it might only be the one. Yeah, and like when when you compare that to everybody else, they like like there's so much design landscape for all these other characters and Barrett is just like literally the lowest hanging fruit for like period racist stock character. Yeah. Yeah. And like like I, I think like I contrast Barrett a lot to um uh Red 13, right? Because like you you could easily imagine a much more racist stock native american character to insert into final fantasy 7 yeah that would be kind of on on the level of how stock barrett is when it comes to just racist caricatures but like yes there's the, the problem of um 
you know, it's, it's like a cat monster. So there's like this weird animality thing going on. But the character itself has a lot of like breadth and space. You know, it, it's doing yeah. a lot. It feels. Yeah. And Barrett just doesn't have that. And that, that, that is why I kind of don't mind him as much, even though it does sort of fall into the, the same sort of animalization trope. Yeah. Yeah. So that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. He does, he does evolve a bit, in, especially in the remake. Um, his macho-ness gets toned down a bit. I'm interested to see where they take it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Any criticism I have of Barrett from the remake are only from the demo. I have not played anything sure. past the demo. Yeah. But, so. I mean, yeah. It's, representation is not the best. Not the best. Um, so, and then in terms of patriarchy, so I just have, have a few Oh, things. let's do it. <laughs> um, let's do it. So, I mean... There, I mean, there's so many, so much to critique in terms of, I guess, patriarchy in the game. So I'll kind of pass that off to to everyone else. One thing I noticed that was hilarious to me was all of the women in the game kept yelling at the men whenever they were crying or afraid or whatever to to stop it and just like be strong. Like Tifa actually yells at Nanaki when he's crying. Yep. Stop it, Nanaki. Be strong. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. Vastly improved in the remake, by the way. I don't oh, see great. I don't see remake Tifa being like that. Okay. Um, but then you had things against kind of against the patriarchy. Like you had like the cross dressing scene, which I know um Can we please Jacob just talk about the hot tub scene for the next like two days? Yes. Yeah. There's so many yeah. homoerotic elements in this game. I was like, damn. I'm very angry that I can't reskin Cloud with the dress mm -hmm. the whole game. Right. It makes me There's got to be a mod out there for that. I, I, I was going to say, I have I have like a third headline where, where it's just like Avalanche Hero Cloud Strife comes out as pansexual recalling hot tub experience. Ah! <gasps> That's so good. <laughs> That's so amazing. Yes. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know about the hot tub experience, does anyone want to recall? <laughs> yeah, when you, you're, you, you get like... Um, the, this this encounter where you there's like a couple moments right there's 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 cloud cross-dressing yeah there's there's a cloud at the like sex hotel mm -hmm. yeah and like at when you're when you're at the sex hotel like you can you can chill in a hot tub with a bunch of dudes and like they're yeah. definitely yeah. into cloud and he's very uncomfortable yes. yeah. Uh, yeah and then you, you you or you could have another experience where like it's very ambiguous about what happens oh yeah yep Oh, well, then you don't you have all Great. those like muscle men coming in and like thrusting at you. Yep, that's yeah. <laughs> there's the hot tub scene is when all the muscle men come in, and then there's another scene you can do depending on what room you go into. There's one where Cloud just like has a hallucination and then passes out, and he's woken up by being slapped silly by one of the muscle men. Mm. So yeah, yeah, a lot of homoeroticism, mm -hmm. which which I appreciated. But then, yeah, then, then, like, you had some, like, extremely patriarchal elements. Like, you had Don Carrero, basically. Yeah, Corneo. Like, oh, sorry, Corneo, or whatever. Um, you know, kidnapping women and forcing them to be his many... His sex slaves. His sex slaves, yeah. Let's be honest yeah. here. Yeah, his oh, sex yeah. slaves. <laughs> so, it was just like, oh, what a horrifying thing. And, like, I'm like, children are playing this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, but I'm like, good. They'll understand the horrors of patriarchy. Yeah. 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 It, he's, he, it gets worse, too, because later on in the game when he captures Elena and Yuffie and then just mm -hmm. chooses Yuffie and she's underage. She's 16 oh, yeah. in the yeah. game. And it's super gross. And she calls him out on it. She says yeah. he's gross. I mean, yeah. yeah. Fucking gross. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if anyone else has any thoughts about kind of patriarchy in the game. Well, I mean, I think that there's a lot of good stuff in there um i think 
like both Tifa and Aerith sort of have these plots going on. I think I think Tifa especially is really well done because um, of all the characters in the game, she's the only one who fights with her fists. Mm-hmm. Um, so the game resists this portrayal of of Tifa as being sort of dainty um, and falling back and sort of like relying on she's she's the first one to run into any fight but she's also not like over she's not also but they also resist the urge to like completely defeminize her like she's not mm-hmm. like she's not a masculine character that is just like she's not like a, ma- a a male character with boobs like they don't they do acknowledge that she is a woman they they treat her as such but she's also the first to rush into fights um, and I just, I like that, I like that characterization of her, especially when you pair her against, uh, Aerith, who is sort of this more stereotypically RPG-ified female character, because she's the healer, she wears pink, uh, she's not necessarily the best fighter. So I, I enjoy the, I enjoy the juxtaposition, the juxtaposition of having, like, these two female characters that are characterized in very different ways, and sort of what that brings to to the table and how they can be characterized. Yeah, yeah. I think like uh, Eris and Tifa are interesting characters because they both have like, Eris is very, very soft, very feminine, but she, she has a really strong sense of like her boundaries and what she wants and her goals. And Tifa is like fanservice.png that the game just uploads every now and then. Like, <laughs> there's there, there's, yeah. there's some kind of like there, there's this weird tension between the two where in like in some respects Tifa is kind of a more agential more fully realized female character because you know she she takes action she does what she wants but like it's all heavily in service of the male gaze you know especially yeah. when we get to later oh. depictions of Tifa and then like Eris on the other hand like she's softer she's a healer role she wears pink she's very timid and introspective like, i don't she's, know she's not I, sexualized at all like her yeah. her clothing like she's yeah. more of like i am an intellectual i am a yeah i really i want to challenge this idea of Aerith being timid um she grew up in the slums she had she's had a hard life she knows her way around the slums inside and out she beats cloud to areas in the slums before he gets there um she's it's her idea to dress up cloud as a woman mm-hmm. and and she goes off to de- to defeat sephiroth by herself oh yeah she's like yeah. don't worry i got this i can destroy sephiroth don't I, worry I, about it i think i and, think you know i think soft-spoken might be the better better word than timid. yeah sure. yeah yeah to, to, timid sure. in relation to just how brash tifa is yeah mm-hmm. uh oh man now i'm now i'm having flashbacks to all the controversy from like a couple months ago when nerd boys started getting angry that they allegedly reduced Tifa's bust size for the remake. Oh God, that was fucking embarrassing. That was really embarrassing. Yeah. Oh, oh um, just the fucking worst. Oh, um, speaking of patriarchy and depiction of women in the game, we have to talk about Scarlet, the most powerful, oh, yeah. the, the, the Shinra board executive. So she's head of Shinra. She's very sexualized in the game, by the way. Yeah. Um, and uh, she's the head of Shinra Weapons Development. So, you know, 
like all the Boeing CEOs or whatever are women now. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Boeing, I think I think of all of, I think they might all have women CEOs. Yeah. I think Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon and Northrop Grumman all have women CEOs now. Mm-hmm. Um, More so- women Mako extractors. <laughs> yeah. Coffee hands. <laughs> yeah. Here's so- here's a little side note that has nothing to do with the game, but I came extremely close to working for Raytheon. Uh, I got, <laughs> well, wow. Thank God that didn't happen. I got a job interview. I got a, like basically they make me take a personality test, and I failed the personality test. Nice. Oh man. Respect. But yeah, yeah, respect. That. <laughs> they're they're the they're the main employer of my hometown, and I came extremely close to working for them. Huh. Wow. Unreal. Shit. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Scarlet gets a seat at the table with the men because she is a she's a torturing, patriarchal, mass murdering psycho, basically. Mm-hmm. Actually, I shouldn't use the term psycho. Um, but uh, yeah, she's a monster. So oh shit, I shouldn't use that either. <laughs> Damn it. Well, you guys she's know what I mean. Good. She's not good. All right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. There's there's that onion article about like women about uh, women war criminals and like how good that is. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. Liberalism TM. Yeah, I think like a, a lot of this a lot of this for me reconnects into just kind of like how bad this game is at handling masculinity. Mm. You know, like like a, a, all of the visions of power are hyper patriarchal masculine masculine visions of power. Uh, like all of the women kind of play into this besides the one that gets murdered before the game really gets going you know like like the game is 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 really about like and i feel like it's a missed opportunity too because like sephiroth and cloud are like the products of this ultra masculine weapons program that's militaristic and it's it's like tactical nonsense like they they're the apotheosis of a punisher t-shirt yeah there's so much like (laughs) space for them to, to grow out of that. And then like Cloud really never is able to escape the fact that he's completely emotionally cloistered. And Sephiroth's desire to reconnect with his mother, like sure, his mother is a space parasite destroying the world, whatever. But like on, on a metaphoric level, like he, he wants to connect with his isolated feminine, right? He wants to rebuild this gap. He wants to bridge this gap to this thing that he can't have access mm-hmm. to because of what he's been made into. Yeah. And the game like says like, okay, what happens when a man reconnects with with their severed like femininity? They become a monster that threatens the entire planet. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh god. I didn't I didn't get that reading, but you're so fucking right. That's wild. <laughs> In the Japanese version of the game, Sephiroth uses a non-binary pronoun to refer to themselves too. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's the, the the same with Genova too. Genova, depending on which edition and which translation, is non as a uh, gender neutral pronoun. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can, if I can leave Final Fantasy VII specifically for a moment and talk about like the extended content. Uh, so there's a for for Maxi's sake because I don't think uh, I know she hasn't played them. There's a Final Fantasy. Uh, there's a Final Fantasy fighting game. Uh, that takes like the the main character and the villain from every Final Fantasy game uh, up until thirteen, and all the if you if you pair people up from if you pair heroes with their with their set villain, uh, they all have unique dialogue, and the Sephiroth Cloud stuff 
is the gayest shit ever. Oh, what do they say? Oh my god. Holy shit. Um, there is so much sexual tension uh, between between Cloud and Sephiroth in Dissidia. It is unbelievable. The, and those games were... Sorry? Oh, I, was, I was just going to say, they are the classic homosocial triangle, right? It's two men yeah. who have a deep and binding longing to be with each other, mm. but because of the patriarchy, because of homophobia, because of heteronormativity, they can't achieve that. So yeah. what do they do? They, they mitigate that through women. And we, yeah. we, have, we have Eris, who, who is their first uh, uh, bridge. And then we have Genova later on, this other, this other female-coded character that they're connecting to each other through. Mm. And like, on just a really raw level, like, you know, a lot of the tension between Sephiroth and Cloud is because they have Genova inside of them. They're both made of Genova. And yeah. Sephiroth, they want to do the reunion. And what is the reunion? It's them going inside of each other. Mm-hmm. It's becoming whole again. <laughs> mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the the entire game is this tension because two dudes just can't fucking get over it. <laughs> the, well, the city was also made by the same person who is making the remake. So I'm really hoping that like they really, pardon the pun, but I'm really hoping they, they go deeper. <laughs> uh, I'll say this about the remake: in some of the cutscenes, Sephiroth gets into Cloud's personal space quite a bit. Uh, there's some ear whispering going on. Um, yeah. So I, d- I just want the dating sim. That's all I want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. So I guess we'll move on to the, the last theme that we were going to discuss today, which is trauma. Oh boy. And how this game really revolves around trauma. Um, so how does it show up for different characters and what can it teach us uh, for this current moment? Ooh, every character in it is traumatized. Every yes. character. Yeah. Everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like, Cloud Trauma was even expanded into its own game. Mm-hmm. Man, Crisis Core was good. I should replay it. I was, I was going to say Dirge of Cerebus, too. It's all about Vincent's trauma and, and his inability to process. Dur- Dirge of Cerebus is probably the only Final Fantasy VII spinoff I haven't played. I really should play it. <laughs> it's funny because like no one's played it, but I like it. But oh, also man. no one's ever I'm owned with a you. PS Vita, so there we go. <laughs> I do own a Vita, so yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's weird that the spinoffs are like so obscure. Mm-hmm. Ash, by the way, I think we might be the only two people on the face of the earth who like Dirge of Cerberus. So I'm really glad. <laughs> I know, right? I'm really glad I've met you. <laughs> Thank you. I feel I feel so validated now. Yeah. I just like I want I want more time with my sad vampire boy. That's hey, really I know, it. I know. I can't wait to play as him in the remake. Oh my god, I can't fucking wait. <laughs> yeah. That was the only part about Advent Children I like is like that like two maybe two minute section where he just like swoops about in his cape and then runs away. Uh huh. That was still really cool. <laughs> anyway, trauma. 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 Okay. Trauma. Trauma. God, we can just gush about this all day. But uh, trauma. Yeah. Okay. Obviously, like the game revolves around Cloud's identity crisis, um, and born of his trauma of having like his town and his destroyed, and his mother killed, and everything he went through, and being ex- scientifically experimented on by Hojo and all this stuff. Tifa and everyone is is because of their trauma either hiding something, hiding their true identity or their true intentions. Uh, like Tifa is yeah. traumatized by, by also what happened in the, uh, the events at Nibelheim, uh, but she keeps Cloud around uh, because she wants to keep an eye on him and she's worried about him. And like deep, like in the back of her mind, she knows that like his personality has fundamentally changed and he's not behaving the way he used to or saying the things he used to. 
but she keeps it. She hides it. She keeps it to herself. Aerith also traumatized by having, you know, been shut up in the in the Shinra headquarters after her and her mother were captured by Hojo and her mother dying. Um, uh, Barrett traumatized by the events in his coal mining town, Mount Coral. Nanaki having been uh, captured and colonized. Uh, Vincent blaming himself for what happened to Lucretia. Um, Sephiroth's true, uh, like, biological mother. Uh, for listeners who may not know, um, Yuffie, what happened to her town, to her, to Wutai, uh, having been basically, you know, turned into a, a, um, a resort, well, not a resort, a, um, a tourist attraction for, for rich Shinra operatives. Uh, Kate Sith, traumatized by being a part of the Shinra machine. Um, everyone, uh, did I miss anyone? Sid. Oh, Sid, his dreams Sid. crushed <laughs> by, yes. by Shira. Um, he takes out all his aggression on her and then realizes that he's been a dick the whole time and mm-hmm. later apologizes yeah. to her, but it takes years. Anyway, he's an abusive asshole. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Sid is probably the, of all the main, of all the playable characters, Sid's probably the least redemptive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, but you can't equip him with a mop. That's maybe, true. Maybe Kaseth because, like, yes, Sid's an abusive asshole, but Kaseth is actually part of the system. Yeah. So I see a case for him maybe being. Yeah. Uh, I mean, ultimately, so we talked we we talked a lot extensively about the leftist theme, but ultimately, the game is probably more about trauma than it is even environmentalism. Yeah, I would. Uh, I trauma agree. trauma defines every character. Mm-hmm. I think those two things you, you can't really separate those that cleanly, mm. though. I, I think because like a lot of this trauma, like a lot of a lot of the trauma comes from the corporations. It comes from this environmental degradation. Yes, it comes mm-hmm. from the patriarchy. Like the stuff is yeah. is, is pretty thoroughly interwoven. Yes, and yeah, and and colonialism, like oh, of course, is, yeah. is responsible for mass or trauma on like massive scales Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. yeah all of the trauma is related to the shinra and their exploitation like literally all of it right yeah Yeah. and then the experiments that they do on people like sephiroth and cloud and whatever and them trying to inject genova cells into people in order order to make them strong soldiers that will defend Mm -hmm. the corporate interests and allow them to keep expanding their operations right like all of the trauma revolves around capitalist Mm -hmm. patriarchy Mm -hmm. colonialism you know and like and and the characters who who don't seem to be traumatized are the characters who are most ingrained into shinra in the first place yeah Yeah. uh because like shinra himself there there's no He's just he's just straight up a bad dude. Like there's no exploration of his trauma because he doesn't have any. He just he's he's entitled and he traumatizes other people. Mm-hmm. Even the Turks don't like they don't go into like in depth with them being traumatized. Um, they're just they're just people who with power who abuse that power and other people are traumatized as a result of their action. Yeah, it would be interesting to see if they had any like traumatic backstories that made them into people <laughs> who couldn't cope. I mean, we'll maybe the remake will touch on it. Although mm-hmm. I think if they were going to do that, they would have done it in the first one. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I think the biggest thing for me was Sephiroth. Um, so again, for people who don't really know, um, Sephiroth was uh, so Lucretia 
and this Professor Hojo, I guess, are Sephiroth's <laughs> parents. But Professor Hojo is like this mad scientist that works for Shinra and wanted to inject people with Genova cells in order to make them powerful kind of turn them into these like biological weapons he was trying to recreate the cetra oh yes yeah um yeah right so uh anyway lucretia is injected with genova cells before he's born that's right so he's she, born her her the sephiroth sephiroth's fetus is injected with genova cells yes but as a byproduct she also yeah she also gets them herself yes but yeah. as soon as he's born, he's ripped away from his mom. His mom's taken away and experimented on and whatever. Um, she disappears. Oh, disappears. Yeah. And then he's just basically turned into this like mega weapon. Um, he's like Homelander. If anyone has read The Boys or or watched the show, he's treated like Homelander as a kid. He's like not, you know, he's kept in very close control by this corporation who want to turn him into a super weapon. Mm-hmm. And then he like breaks into a library or he's yeah. in a library and he, he reads about like the cetera. And yeah. He reads about Genova. And Gas, Professor Gast, who is the, pre- who is the, the better, you know, between Hojo and, and Gast. Gast is the senior scientist. Gast's mistake cost everything. And his huge mistake was believing that when they, when they came across Genova trapped in a rock, they thought that Genova was a Cetra. And really they had found the body of a Cetra who is who is completely taken over by by Genova. Um, and then Gast went on to racialize the Cetra in his research. And that's what the traumatized Sephiroth, that's the literature that Sephiroth was consuming when he was at his emotionally weakest state. So he was taking in all this false information. Um, yeah, and so and he, he thought Genova was his mom. Right um because he didn't he never knew his mom so he just had a lot of like mommy issues daddy issues he was just treated (laughs) treated like complete shit whatever yeah very very traumatized um but with cloud like cloud had tifa the whole time doing a whole ton of like feminized labor for him Mm -hmm. i want to call it emotional labor but i know everyone like hates that term now but it (laughs) you know yeah um she helps him sort out his identity crisis. Do they, is, 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 is that is that a verboten term now? Because I still use it. I still use it. Yeah. So anyway, she she's doing a, a fuck ton of emotional labor for Cloud to get him through his trauma. Um, but Sephiroth doesn't have that, right? Sephiroth doesn't really have anyone, and he's just been like really mistreated his whole life. So he has no coping mechanism. So without that, he really just embraces this patriarchal. Yeah rage yeah. and revenge and i say he goes full fash yeah. like it's not like fascist like he doesn't want to create necessarily an ethnostate he like wants to be god literally but like he just yeah he turns that into the like this fantasy of of power and destruction and yeah. of just like fucking everyone he over. was he's a super powerful guy who was desperate to find identity and came across a copy of mein kampf or yeah. siege <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know. Well, like, yeah. fascism doesn't have to be an ethno state. Fascism yeah. is more about like, no. yeah, like structures of power. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it just so happens that m- most of the time those structure powers uh, turn into ethno states, but they can you can you can base them on other lines. But he yeah. does view uh, the Cetra as the master race. Yeah, he says so himself. Sephiroth, like the way Sephiroth talks about Cetra and Genova, there's a lot of really uneasy parallels with like 
uh, like World War II style Nazi discourse about like the Teutonic glory and stuff like that. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. there's definitely like a fascist impulse in Sephiroth's dialogue. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, no. What, what I'm saying is that like just because he he doesn't want to necessarily build an ethno state doesn't mean he's not a fascist. Mm-hmm. Is what I'm trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. His, his his fascism may not be an ethno state, but it's still fascism. Mm-hmm. That that's sort of what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Legit. Agreed. Yeah. And I mean, I thought that was super relevant for today's moment, where a lot yeah. of like a lot of the new baby Nazis or neo Nazis are these really disaffected uh, men who are probably traumatized, uh, who thankfully don't have superpowers. Yes, uh, but you know, searching for identity, searching for any kind of comradeship, and then this is this is what they get into, right? Because they yeah. they're not allowed to express uh, emotion in a healthy way as men under the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think like I think like the, the, the that's like a really big takeaway from Final Fantasy VII, right? Is that like e- even though Cloud has Tifa and Tifa is kind of like forced into this position of doing all of this kind of like domestic and matriarchal labor for him, mm-hmm. he still turns out as a really shitty patriarchal dude. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's it's only through like literally fighting gods and monsters that he gains even a tiny access to his emotional landscape. And like, like I think like part part of the thing Final Fantasy VII is painting here is that like individual answers can't solve this problem. This is a collective issue, mm-hmm. and it must be faced yeah. collectively. Otherwise, it can't be faced. Yeah, it's really interesting that like you know he him being emasculated or him feeling emasculated when he was younger um, led him to even want to join the soldier program yeah. in mm-hmm. the first place. Um, yeah. And led him to, I guess, want to lie about it for so long or convince himself that he actually was part of Soldier and he actually was, all, you know, mm-hmm. this really powerful dude yeah. Uh, yeah. for so long, right? Yeah. And not and, like a clone. Yeah. And it was reading about Sephiroth in the newspaper that made him want to join Soldier too. It's yeah. reading about this like, oh, here's this like super powerful guy who can basically single-handedly subjugate an entire nation, Wutai. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, that's... yeah. That's what I want to be. Right? Just, just want to be dominated by Sephiroth. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, although, like, so I, I never took it as um, literally fighting gods and monsters that sort of gives Cloud the space to um, sort of open up and be more human. Uh, I, I, I took it as him stepping away from this institution. Like, cause by the, by the time he joins Avalanche and is committed to Avalanche, that's his found family. And so like, oh, yeah. I, 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 I read it as like, it is through, I, I, not, not the fighting, but the, the found family, yeah. uh, being, being what allows him to heal and become sort of human. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 The comradeship. Yeah, and the the enormous amount of emotional labor that Tifa does when they he when she's like inside Clyde, Cloud's mind when they've fallen into the mm-hmm. life stream in Medeal and helps him piece together all the memories and make sense of it and process it that he's able to become whole again and you see like his aspects his memories coming together to form a whole cloud. Um, just just imagine if they had like a nationalized healthcare system that could have done that. For <laughs> yeah, everything's privatized. By the way, World of Final Fantasy VII. Um, yep. Yeah. Barrett talks about having to pay for Marlene's school and all sorts mm-hmm. of things. So. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
that's I mean that that goes goes once again with it being a a intended parody uh, or satire, an intended satire of America. Yes. Oh, <laughs> oh, they they play this up. There's a scene in the remake where you're in the Shinra building, and you, this isn't a spoiler thing. You're you're led to a floor where you have to where you it's like a, a museum, and the section is on President Shinra, and behind him there's a like a it's not really a flag it's like it's like there's an image on the wall behind his statue and the the image is split uh diagonally and one half of it is black and the other is yellow oh really so i think they're trying to yeah they're trying to i think they might be trying to say something about anarcho-capitalism there um, <laughs> it's very stark it's like a very That's in really your funny. face when you see it yeah i took a screen cap in game because i was like holy shit yeah 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 well if you think about it like the shinra and like this is this is what an anarcho-capitalist system would end up in absolutely right? because oh yeah capital yeah. concentrates into fewer and fewer hands monopoly is the result of actually deregulation you know that's just the natural progression of capital and so mm-hmm. you know you would basically just have one corporation uh, in the end just mm-hmm. annexing all of the other corporations you're just becoming this one and then of course you're going to have them having their own privatized military privatized police privatized yeah, secret yeah. service feudalism with extra steps i'm going to hear all the squealing <laughs> anarcho-capitalists right now squealing about how it's governments that grant monopolies yes. but anyway um that's oh, another God. thing yeah i know rufus shinra just pulled himself up by his bootstraps he built something <laughs> he really yeah. did what a self-made movie. Avalanche just destroys stuff. I mean, it's it's just right there. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. So last thing we have here, uh, Jake, but I don't know if you want to touch on this. Uh, so I know, Green, you've said that this was kind of an analogy for America. Yeah. Um, I had a, I had a different take, but I really liked your take about it. Well, that was, that was uh, I forget, that was one of the creators that said that. He, said, he was talking about like how, uh, yeah, uh, seven is America. That's why it's so ultra-capitalist. Mm. Uh, eight is Japan. That's why, like, th- it has like this really regimented school system huh. that everyone goes through. Um, whereas, like, nine is European. That's why it goes back to feudal, yeah, uh, systems. Mm-hmm. And ten is uh, like Car- Caribbean island-, island culture, which is why it is like so themed around water. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I. I hadn't considered that, and I think it, that's I, especially FF eight being about Japan because and the, the res, regimented school system. I like that com- went completely over my head. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. but uh, my my take from FF seven was that it was also a narrative about Japan's identity crisis, the Japan's post war mm-hmm. identity crisis specifically. Yeah. Um, and ha- well, and I mean, keep keep in mind that like even if these games are are supposed to be analogous to X cultural group they're still filtered through like a japanese totally. artistic framework yeah so like you can be like it's a metaphor for um for america but that doesn't undo any japanese readings it's still made by japanese people primarily for japanese consumption mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah you know J- japan had a counter well it was ruled by the tokugawa shogunate and the tokugawa shogunate for for 250 years they were the most powerful military military leaders and um the the emperor during this time was more of a figurehead and then they had the meiji restoration on i think 1868 uh which saw uh the downfall of the tokugawa shogunate and the reinstatement of the emperor uh as the head of state and then world war ii happened of course i'm skipping a lot um and japan felt uh the full force of 
technological advancement, shall we say. Um, And that is why themes of apocalypse and giant explosions feature so heavily in Japanese media. Um, I think the the illusion of uh, uh, the idea of Neo Midgar is a direct reference to Neo Tokyo, uh, which is something that comes up in lots of animes, including Akira. Mm. uh, And we all know what happens to Neo Tokyo in Akira. It gets completely annihilated. Um, Mm -hmm. And this juxtaposition between Wutai and Midgar is representative of Japan's identity crisis uh, with respect to tradition and modernity. And uh, indeed, like uh, after the Meiji Restoration and and projects of modernization, especially in the post-war period, the last samurai holdouts, uh, basically there was a, there, there was a soft uh, civil war where the, the um, centralized state power uh, deposed the last sa- feudal samurai holdouts and turned them into vassals of the state. And that is what Wutai is resisting. Like the, the Wutai war started because they refused to have a Mako reactor built there. And then after the Wutai war, Shinra abandoned the plans to build the Mako reactor there. They were like, fuck it, we're going to do this whole Neo Midgar thing instead. So the whole war was for nothing. Um, and yeah, I think uh, I think the developers used the game to talk, to, to talk about Japanese, the struggle of Japanese identity in the post-war period. Um, and if you Google, like, this isn't just my words, like, if you Google Japan identity crisis, there's, like, a zillion hits that come up. Oh, yeah, this. yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a thing. It, it's, uh, it is prevalent through all Japanese sci-fi um, and fantasy, mm-hmm. right up until, like, I think, I think when you get into the, the 2000s, it start, you start seeing a decline in it as a theme, but prior to, like, the 2000s, it's everywhere in Japanese media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like every Miyazaki uh, film deal almost, I think everyone that I can think of deals with science, uh, versus technology versus tradition, right? Technology versus. Well, I mean, Miyazaki was also a communist, uh, like an avowed communist until he wasn't. And, um, well, he gave up on the idea of a revolutionary working class in Japan. Yeah. Uh, so like now he's, he believes in local action only. Mm -hmm. It's really, really disappointing what happened to him, but uh like that's why so many of his works are just overtly anti-fascist yeah uh because him up until like the 90s was overtly Mm anti-fascist and like he's still anti-fascist he just doesn't believe in in that revolution is possible yeah yeah well i don't know i can see both of those readings so thank you both for sharing those um so yeah that's all i had written down to to discuss uh does anyone want to bring up any other last points well we just left on the note that of miyazaki not believing that revolution is possible so maybe we can go to in a more positive <laughs> yeah uh, well, I, also, <laughs> like yeah. miyazaki is wrong so. okay yeah. great perfect like, we did it I, I, that, that is bad branding to leave this podcast <laughs> yeah. On that yeah. <laughs> yeah it's pretty off brand yeah yeah great um so i guess uh for ash and for green do you want to just shout out quickly where where people can find you and your work so you can find me primarily on twitter uh at a neon green city mm-hmm. and you can also find me on instagram at a cure for sleep and i've recently started uh streaming on twitch but i'm super inexperienced at streaming and my internet quality isn't that good but I'm trying. 
yeah, that's all good. And do you want to shout out the Indigenous Anarchist Federation at all? Yeah, and so yeah, so yeah, so I'm also I'm also a founding member of the Indigenous Anarchist Federation, which you can find at uh, IAF underscore FAI at um, on Twitter.com, and it is the same for our website. Awesome, Ash. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Goth Uncharted, uh, but you'll. Probably, uh, I also write for Protean Magazine and a couple other places. You can find that all on my Twitter. Um, but you can probably mostly find me on Horror Vanguard. It's at Horror Vanguard on Twitter or just the Horror Vanguard, wherever you find high-quality podcasts. Uh, we look at horror movies from the perspective of left politics and just bizarre theory. So, yeah, that's, that's me. Awesome. And you can't find me yes, anywhere. You're not gonna, you're not gonna find, <laughs> because one step ahead of the game. You won't even find a picture of Jacob <laughs> on social media. Um, yes, I'm yeah. unable. I'm unable to post any, even on my my Instagram. Yeah. But that's fine. Um, Opsec. <laughs> yeah, very very good opsec over here. Um, so yeah. Anyway, thank you all for having this amazing discussion. Uh, I hope everyone listening enjoyed this because i very much enjoyed talking about it um so yeah just thanks again everyone for coming on and for all the listeners we will see you in a few weeks bye, bye.